we all give ourselves a whole lot of credit for being open-minded. But if you ever talk to, you know, someone who identifies, you know, politically as a left-winger, and then you try to talk to them about animal agriculture, they want to talk about climate change. They don't want to talk about animal agriculture. This is the thing that that makes me bonkers about, you know, folks who consider themselves radicals, you know, and, and this is this is our, this is the, the artist's job is to question the dominant culture. What is the most fundamental expression of human culture? It's food. And folks do not want to go there, but they want credit for asking the tough questions, but they're not asking the tough questions. Welcome back to another episode of the Plant-Based News Podcast. I'm joined today by renowned American author, teacher, and vegan educator, Camille DeAngelis, best known for her acclaimed novel, Bones and All. Originally from New Jersey and currently based in Washington, D.C., Camille considers herself a writer for all ages. Her previous work includes novels, Practical Philosophy, and The Moon Guide to Ireland, which she regularly updates. She's the author of two books of nonfiction, Life Without Envy, Ego Management for Creative People, and A Bright Clear Mind, Veganism for Creative Transformation. Her best-known work to date is the award-winning novel Bones and All, and was first published in 2015, and recently turned into a film starring Timothy Chalamet, which premiered in 2022. The novel tells the story of a young woman named Marin who is plagued by a compulsion to eat the bones of people she loves. The book explores themes of love, obsession, and the nature of family as the protagonist sets out on a journey to understand her condition and find a way to live with it. After being a long-time vegetarian, Camille became vegan in 2011. She pursued her interest in the vegan movement further and in 2013 became a certified vegan lifestyle coach and educator through Victoria Moran's Main Street Vegan Academy. I'm excited to welcome Camille to the podcast, where we're going to delve deeper into her vegan journey, writing inspiration, and much more. I'm Robbie Lockie, and this is the PBN Podcast. As always, if you like this episode, please don't forget to comment, like, and share. And if you're on Apple Podcasts, please leave us a review. It really helps get the message out there. Let's get to the episode. Welcome to the PBN Podcast, Camille. Great to finally sit down with you and uh, hear your story. Thank you so much for having me, Robbie. I'm delighted to be with you. You want more than anything in the world to tell stories that your readers will remember for the rest of their lives. Of course you do. If that weren't true, you wouldn't be a writer. Each of my novels has an unusual premise. There's the one about the scientist who clones her grandmother, the teen cannibal road trip novel, and so on. People often ask me how I managed to come up with such original ideas. And over the past few years, I've observed my own process to figure out what I do differently and how I can teach it. Before we dive into all the amazing things you've done in recent years, let's go back in time and I'd love to hear your vegan story. How did you discover this lifestyle? Where did that all begin for you? So I, I have these moments that I remember from childhood where I would, you know, have that, that spark of like, I need to make sure that I'm using a, you know, a soap that wasn't tested on animals and things like that. And, but then I would, you know, continue to eat them. And so I like to call this, uh, and I think it's probably the case for a lot of us vegans that, you know, it's an epiphany that came in trickles. <laughs> So I became a vegetarian. Uh, actually, I had found this copy of this book called Conversations with God. I don't know if you are into the whole, you know, kind of new age. I know of it. Um, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I had scoffed at that book in, uh, initially because I had a job at Walden Books back in high school. And so, you know, that was part of the job was restocking. 
And so I was restocking the new age and spirituality section. And I was like, oh, this just looks like nonsense. But then I found the book again a couple years later at uh, when I was studying at NYU. And um, there's this legendary bookstore called The Strand on, uh, is that Broadway, 4th Avenue? I can't remember. Anyway, it's just below Union Square. So uh, legendary bookstore, they have these like dollar carts outside the, the bookstore. And I found the book again. This is something I've been thinking a lot about is um, sometimes, you know, in, in terms of effective advocacy work, it takes a lot of mentions, you know, times people are hearing about animal agriculture and, you know, why adopt a plant-based diet. It takes a, a, a lot of exposure over a period of time before folks are more open-minded to new ideas and new new ways of looking at uh, our relationship with the non-human world. It was the same with this book. Um, and I, I like to think of it as, you know, changing my own mind, which I think is something that is necessary, you know, if you're going to, you know, make leaps and bounds, you know, in your personal development, um, you have to be willing to accept that you were wrong about some things that you were very, very sure about in your earlier life, right? So so this was one of those times where I thought, you know, I scoffed at this book. Something is telling me that I should pick it up and I should spend a dollar on it and I should, I should um, finally read this. So I did. And there's a, a really powerful passage in there where, you know, this entity who identifies themselves as God is talking about what a quote unquote highly evolved being would and would not do. And it's just very stated very matter of factly that a highly evolved being quote, quote unquote does not consume the flesh of animals. And I remember reading this on the A train <laughs> summer after my freshman year and having that, you know, one of the first big moments in that that multi-step epiphany. And so from that point, I was, I mean, technically I was a pescatarian. Um, so, somebody has this great <laughs> phrase, a fish and chipocrite. <laughs> when you call yourself a vegetarian, but you're not actually a vegetarian. Oh my yet. goodness. I love that. Fish yeah. is not a vegetable people. Yes. Yes. And, um, and so I, I, I wish I could, I could remember the name of the person who came up with that because it's hilarious and so spot on because so many of us, um, I've talked to so many people who were pescatarian before became a proper vegetarian, became a vegan. So that was me. So another year went by and, and then I, I was, I think my dad had had bought a tuna steak and it was the word steak that I was like, no, I can't. This is, this is a being. I should not be eating this animal. So at that point I was a pro proper vegetarian, but then it still took me like 10 years <laughs> to put all the pieces together. So finally I uh, did that really stereotypical white girl thing where I went to India hoping to find myself. Um, you had your eat, pray, love moment, right? Yes. I mean, <laughs> it's embarrassing, it. but yes. <laughs> <laughs> We've all had it. We've all been yeah, there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's true. It's true. But actually, I did find myself, you know, uh, had some really important conversations with folks who had been vegan for a really long time, you know, were able to sort of reconceptualize things for me uh, or you know, not for me, but encourage me to do it for myself in a really gentle, loving way. Shout out to anyone who has ever volunteered at Sadna Forest, which I've is heard a lot about one, that. Place, oh, actually. it is. It is a magical, magical place. Tell, tell us I'm a sure, bit about it. Let's take oh, a little segue into yes. this, dive into this little side quest. Yeah. Yeah. That you did. 
this wonderful Israeli family. Now, I actually didn't get the opportunity to meet them, unfortunately, because they were traveling at the time that I was there. I was there for about three weeks in April 2011. The family were, were traveling, but um, how long? So this was like back in 2003. They had come to India. This is an Israel, a vegan Israeli family had come to India, spoken with the local government, had gotten permission to settle on this land that had been, I, mean, I think it was like 80 plus acres of land. I could be getting this wrong, but it was a, you know, a sizable tract of land that had been raised by the British for, um, for timber many, you know, many years before. So they said, can we reforest this land? And the local government gave them permission. And so they've been there ever since. And they've, they've since expanded to, I believe, Kenya and Haiti as well. There are reforestation projects uh, that are also called Sadna Forest in both Haiti and Kenya as well. It was just the most, one of the most wonderful experiences of community that I've ever had, uh, probably the, the most. What were you doing there? Well, you said, I think, did you mention volunteering? So like, what kind of yes. Yes. So you go and, and in order to, you know, cover your food expenses, you know, you chip in like a dollar a day for like that, something like that for the time that you're there. So it's really negligible. You know, sometimes when you're volunteering abroad, you know, there, there's a really hefty fee involved. Um, and I don't, I, I, I can't speak to any, you know, any other you know, projects along these lines. Um, but, but yeah, they, they really weren't looking to like profit off of folks coming. The truth was they didn't actually expect anyone. Amazingly, in retrospect, they did not expect anyone to show up. This was just going to be something that they were going to work on. And then folks started hearing about it because they were near, um, or I guess technically a part of this international community outside of Pondicherry in Tamil Nadu. So they were getting a reputation. Um, you know, there were you know backpackers coming in and out and hearing about the wonderful work they were doing, and they wanted to be a part of it. So the the, the you know the community, depending on the time of year, there could be I think as many as like 150 people there, and you know you're living communally um, on these like coconut fiber mattresses, um, you know, under mosquito netting in these wonderful buildings that you know everybody has you know helped to to build or someone, some volunteers at somewhere along the line in, in the past, you know, had, had helped to put these buildings up that everyone's sleeping in and cooking in. And I actually didn't, it wasn't tree planting season. I remember watering and working in the kitchen, the kitchen. So I was watering this, the, the, the baby trees working in the kitchen. And that was, and then I spent one, one week, one whole week out of the three weeks that I was there sick, uh, in the, in the quote unquote healing hut. And, and, and that was actually the time when I was able to synthesize what I was taking in, you know, in terms of the, the vegan philosophy. Cool. Was it um, a vegan? It's, it's vegan, isn't it? They, they yes. Mm-hmm. And they're very, they're very, very mindful about it. It's not sort of a wishy-washy, you know, quote unquote veganism. They are very, very committed. And, you know, to the point where, we and, the, and this is an obvious thing, but um, I, I loved that they had a rodent relocator. That was one of the jobs <laughs> that you could sign up for. Wow! And yeah, and so you know, because there were rats, and n- no, we would never, ever, ever try to kill a rat. The there were stray dogs who would come onto the compound, and the rosins were, you know, kind of had mixed feelings because they, you know, ideally like don't don't believe in 
quote unquote, owning another animal, which is, you know, obviously not, not a conversation that we're going to get into, but, uh, but they had that, that ambivalence. And, and so finally someone said, well, you know, these dogs are hungry, let's feed them. And so, you know, we're making dal and, and, you know, different kinds of curries and, and, you know, we would just make a little extra for the stray dogs. Um, and they had their own, you know, little feeding station and, um, and the, the dogs were happy. The humans were happy. The rats were happy. <laughs> Isn't it remarkable how from country to country and culture to culture, the perception and the treatment of animals is so wildly different, you know, over, over sort of in the West and the sort of the home of capitalism, you know, animals are are pure commodity. Whereas in the East and sort of Eastern philosophy, which links in with Buddhism and Jainism, even in in Sikhism, animals are revered and respected. Um, yes, of course, people still eat them, but there is there's a much bigger culture of um, mutual respect with animals, unlike what we have in the UK and the US. And I know there's this weird paradox because, and we'll talk about it a bit about narrative, I suppose, but how we have this narrative in our minds, how Growing up, we love animals, but we also eat them, um, and we all maintain this cognitive dissonance that goes on throughout our lives until something comes along and what I like to say call unlocks a realization that our beliefs and our actions are out of alignment, and that perhaps, perhaps there's no scientific data to prove this, but perhaps that unalignment, that misalignment is causing emotional turmoil in some way or some kind of emotional imbalance within us as people. I'm not a psychologist, so don't cancel me. <laughs> but I think that, you know, when we when we learn to be more in alignment with our beliefs and our and our actions, it creates a sense of change and shift within us and a, and, a, and those realizations that people have. But I'd love to learn more about like how you change as a person. You sound like you're, you know, what, you obviously was a very compassionate person, as most people are. But what actually was a fundamental shift for you when you started to see animals differently and started to have all these realizations about how the world we live in, which is literally built on the back of animals, all our economic systems are, you know, how did that change your worldview in, in some way? Yeah, I love to talk, I've written a book about this, how my, my feelings and my, my orientation, you know, as I say, towards the way that you see the non-human world yourself in relationship in relation to the non-human world and humanity as a whole, it dovetailed with my creative practice. So I, I became much more humble. You know, you see yourself in the grander scheme and you you see how there's this this bifurcation where on the one hand you are so small, you are so insignificant, you know, in the cosmic scheme, you are, yeah, we're like, we're all of us, you know, and we, we kind of, you know, you can look at a mouse. I'm, I'm rereading Mrs. Frisbee and the rats of Nim right now, that classic children's novel, which, uh, incidentally, uh, was written by, um, a scientist who had tested on rats, uh, and was inspired to, to write this story. And so I'm rereading this and I'm thinking about the life of a mouse, you know, and to a human, the life of a mouse is insignificant. You know, the, the mouse has no, has no inner world, has no thoughts, has no desires, but, you know, according to the, the average human being. Well, you don't know that. You have no way of knowing that, but you just take it for granted because, you know, everyone who came before you, not everyone, but, you know, in your family, probably. Um, I saw this meme recently that I, I know I don't want to get too too off topic here, but just just a little side note about tradition. What is tradition? 
uh, and someone, and this, I just, I, I laughed and laughed because I just thought that this is, this is so true. Um, there was a, a, a meme, I think I found it on YouTube, something about tradition being this set of rules that dead people have passed on to you. And it's true. It's true. And uh, dead humans, that is opening up to that sense of humility, the sense of possibility, the sense that my way of seeing the world is not the way. There are other ways. There are many, 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 many other ways. Getting that sense, possibly for the first time in your life, of your your smallness, your insignificance in the cosmic scheme, which is actually paradoxically an exhilarating feeling. Because if you're a perfectionist, if you're, and this is where the, the creativity comes in, if you're, you're taking yourself too seriously, it's like, oh, I have to, I have to figure out how I'm going to write this novel. It's not important, <laughs> and that's tremendously liberating because you've become a more hu- humble human being and a more open-minded in a very practical sense. Because you know, we all give ourselves a whole lot of credit for being open-minded. But if you ever talk to, uh, you know, someone who identifies, you know, politically as a left winger, and then you try to talk to them about animal agriculture, you know, they want to talk about climate change. They don't want to talk about animal agriculture. This is the thing that, that makes me bonkers about, you know, folks who consider themselves radicals, you know, and, and this is, this is, our, this is the, the artist's job is to, to question the dominant culture, right? Um, and what is the most fundamental expression of human culture? It's food. And folks do not want to go there, but they want credit for asking the tough questions, but they're not asking the tough questions. Anyway, end rant. I mean, it's an interesting exploration, isn't it? And I'm fascinated by it. I'm so fascinated by the shift in human consciousness, not just when we become vegan, we change our whole attitude towards food and the food system, but anything, spirituality. Uh, There's a young friend of mine I've known many years, and he, as far as I've known, he's always been an atheist. Uh, He was actually born vegan. Um, I'm sure he won't mind me talking about his story. I, w- I won't mention his name for his privacy, but um, he recently converted to Islam, which, you know, nothing against Islam. Abrahamic religions are, in my opinion, very, very rigid in their kind of like ideologies in the, of the world. To, and to go from being someone who f- felt very liberal and very sort of like expansive to someone who would then dive into uh, an Abrahamic religion felt like a complete reversal of being. Now, of course, you know, I totally respect him. Um, I'm really looking forward to sitting down with him and having an interfaith dialogue. You know, we talk about Buddhism, I talk about Buddhism, he'll talk about Islam. I would love to learn more about his philosophies and his reasonings. But it's such a curious thing how the human mind and the brain is able to take on new ideas and integrate them into our lives, hopefully for the most part for the better. You know, this is obviously a slight tangent, but you know, there are times where it isn't for the better. There are ways in which human beings integrate ideas that are based on misinformation and disinformation. Some might say that our brains are very easy to hijack. Our ideas and beliefs are very easy to hijack uh, because there are many very skilled communicators out there with nefarious motives who know how to push the buttons of the masses and steer public opinion in different ways. And the food system is a big part of that. You know, in the United States today, Lobby groups are multi-billion, multi-trillion dollar, you know, have, they have deep pockets, basically. And they're able to influence governments, which then are able to then influence the populace. I'd love to just to hear, as a, as a writer and a, and a person who's involved in this, you know, the written word and someone this is kind of fundamental to your life, 
how do you see the world changing in this respect? Does it scare you? Are you excited about it? Because like, obviously there's a lot going on in the world of knowledge and information. Maybe we'll touch a bit on AI as a mm. writer. I'm interested to hear what you think of that. <laughs> Misinformation, disinformation is a big part of the problem in our society. You know, I'm deeply concerned about it. But how do you feel, Camille, about the world and the state of the world we are today with how misinformation on many subjects spread so rapidly? I, well, first of all, um, I think it's wonderful the work that you do focusing on facts, you know, over at Plant Based News. That I think that's really important. We can't have too many people in that camp. I mean, I, th- I think it is, it is important to appeal to people's emotions as well, to get someone to see themselves to see their own, you know, fear, longing, pleasure, you know, inside, you know, the face of a pig or a chicken or a cow. People are always talking about how you have to hustle to get ahead in your career. So I made this note to self that I think will be helpful for you too. Don't hustle, endeavor. Now, I know these words might seem like near synonyms, but they're actually two completely different mindsets. One is joyful and process-oriented, and the other is a recipe for burnout. At first, the definition of endeavor seems to line up with hustle, trying hard to do or achieve something. But earnest is one key word here. Sincere and intense conviction, and undertaking is another. One of the definitions of undertaking is a formal pledge or promise. This is your utmost effort, a noble effort. You're working for something bigger than your own success. As for hustle, granted, the dictionary entry hasn't caught up with current usage, but then and now, it conveys a sense of panic, rush, fear, frantic and unceasing effort. It's more than hard work there is still an element of forceful persuasion. Then and now, hustling takes itself too seriously. It's competitive and performative. When you endeavor, you're doing basically the exact same work, but with a completely different attitude. As I define it, endeavoring is full-hearted and process-oriented, while hustling is all about the end result which is ironic because when you hustle, you never arrive. No matter how many followers you have, no matter how much money you make, none of those numbers are gonna seem like enough. You will never feel like enough. But when you endeavor, the intrinsic value of the work you've done is way more important than the vanity metrics. Go from your emotions, like you obviously, you must go on social media and, Mm. uh, you know, you must see family reacting to things. I mean, how do you feel about where we're at with with social media and how knowledge Mm. and information is spread? It's changing so quickly. Yeah, yeah. And I I think that this kind of dovetails, well, first first of all, I am largely off of social media these days for, you know, because it's, I just find that it's better for my mental health. I will, I will be back on, um, I don't think I'll be back on Facebook. Because I find that, you know, talking about, you know, family posting things, you know, you realize like you're not going to change anybody's mind because when they're being exposed to this dis- disinformation, they're choosing not to do their own research and find a reputable sp- source, a reliable source. And th- those folks are, n- are not what I would call reachable. 
Um, I mean, I joke like not in this lifetime. I hope they prove me wrong. <laughs> Hopefully you'll appreciate this as a Buddhist whenever I encounter someone whose behavior has been like really, really awful, um, which is like often strangers on the street. I say, may they find the path of enlightenment just to try to like not stew in my frustration that someone has said something so unkind is this the the thing and again i'm gonna gonna get off topic here um hopefully i won't get too ranty but the way that i've noticed that and social media ties in here too thinking about watching the way people treat each other i do feel like it's gotten worse in the sense that because your attention is so fixated on the device in your hand you're paying less attention to what's going on around you. And in the past, it feels, and I'm going to be this, you know, it's a very curmudgeonly thing to say. So I apologize in advance. In the past, if you, you know, were on your phone and you bumped into somebody, or, you know, if you're doing something and you bumped into somebody, you would say, oh, excuse me. And then you move on with your day. And it seems like nowadays, like a lot of folks will be like, well, you were in my way. So there is that, that frustration that I feel with like, well, how are we going to get these folks to care about the plight of animals if they don't even see other humans in their vicinity as people with their own agendas. Like we're all just trying to get somewhere, you know? There's a lot of anger out there. Mm. There's no doubt about it. I mean, humans have always been troubled Mm. species, but Mm. since time immemorial. But I do think with all the challenges we face over the last few decades with pandemics and wars and economic collapse, you know, it, it is creating a lot of anger, but we could obviously talk for hours about the demise of humanity, but let's dive into fantasy. <laughs> or the, let's dive into the world of writing because mm. obviously, you know, that's, that's what you do. And I'd love mm. to learn how you became uh, a writer because it's such a magical thing to be able to dream up worlds and ideas and stories. Tell us about how you became a writer and where did, when did you know I'm a writer? This is my thing. Yeah. Well, I, what was, what was particularly cool, you know, something I feel really good about looking back on that really formative time, um, you know, in my late teens, early twenties, it was the same time that I was becoming more aware of animal suffering. And obviously I had a long way to go, but I've, I've kind of mapped one onto the other, you know, when I look back and I try to make sense of, I mean, I've come a long, come such a long way. I mean, I'm 42 now and I started working on my first novel when I was 19, I think. And I called it my practice novel. We'll never see the light of day. You will never read it. And that is for the best. But, the, you know, that's something that I, I, I think this is changing. Folks are talking more about the behind the scenes stuff, you know, all of the frustration and uncertainty and self-doubt that you don't see when you pick up, you know, my hardcover book in the bookstore and you just, you see it, you see what looks like, you know, polished, shiny, you know, uh, carefully copy edited success. And it's, you know, it's much more complicated than that. You know, it's a wonderful thing to be able to go through all of the, the, you know, turbulent, sometimes turbulent processes behind the scenes um, and not have to show that to anyone. <laughs> um, although I I am, uh, I realize I'm like, I'm, I kind of, you know, being in my 40s now, looking back over my archive and like trying to organize it, I, I'm trying to think about how I can, you know, go through those old materials and see like, how can I present this in a way that's going to be useful for creative writing 101 students? 
Because there, there is always that gap and the que- the big question, like, how do I get from here? Let's say, you know, 19-year-old me had had not even finished a short story, you know, since the time I was like 12. Um, not something I would ever hope to try to, to polish and eventually, you know, send out for publication. How do you get from this 19-year-old aspiring novelist full of self-doubt and, you know, how am I ever, how am I ever going to become you know, da, 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 da. and then, you know, you've got the 42 year old me who has this like, you know, fancy, you know, Hollywood movie story in my rear view mirror, which is like still amazing to think about. I still don't quite believe it. So I, I think it's important to, and I guess, you know, I'm getting a little bit again, again, getting a little bit off topic <laughs> here. Um, but I think it's important to, to, to pay it forward in the sense that, you know, I want to like anyone who's listening to this right now who wants to become anything not just a writer or any kind of you know creative practice that you want to cultivate anything you want to be you will build the bridge from your present self to that future self through consistent effort you know and i mean there's that necessary uh, there's a psychologist eric mazel who um talks about this concept which is so useful necessary arrogance. So there it is so interesting how, you know, it's been so important to cultivate the sense of humility, but then you still, on the other hand, you have to have the necessary arrogance to believe that a story that you tell is mm. worth, worth, worth reading, sharing, worth mm. sharing, worth, worth hearing. Let me be candid friends. I am kind of tired of reading stories about chosen ones and half-baked magical systems and star-crossed cishet romances with bland protagonists and contrived misunderstandings. I want to see more aspiring writers striving to write original stories, original stories, stories that don't feel like a pale imitation of someone else's. The advice I'm about to share applies whether you're writing fiction or nonfiction. Fine tune your input. You may have heard that classic adage in computer science, garbage in, garbage out. The poet Saul Williams offered a variation on this advice to his writing students at Stanford. Being like, what you read is your diet. What you watch, channels, dumb shit, is your diet. What you listen to is your diet. What you talk about, what you allow to be talked about in circles around you, that's your diet. That's what you're ingesting. There's no such thing as originality is one of those yes but truisms. As Adman John Hegarty writes in his book Hegarty on Creativity, There Are No Rules, originality is dependent upon the obscurity of your sources. You can still write something that feels original to your reader, but you'll have to take a closer look at the creative content you consume. So I'm sure you're familiar with imposter syndrome. Mm. Um, many people experience this when they begin the journey of self-discovery and and then creation as well. Mm. Um, I myself experience it most days. Uh, I sit here thinking, I don't know what I'm doing. I have no idea what I'm doing. How am I doing this? Um, same, yeah. hard same. <laughs> yeah. So so how do you like between now and if we go back in time to when you first started doing what you do now? How have you managed to 
achieve all these things without sort of collapsing you know in a heap mm, under up. the under the crippling weight of self-doubt which is quite common how do you what are the ways in which you have propelled yourself forward because I've heard many writers got my friend Molly she is a writer she's done a few she's done like a, a couple of feature films as well and she said to me that it's like giving birth to a child and when you're creating it you have you cannot be distracted if you're distracted by social she's actually blocked herself from all social media. in fact she deleted all her social media because she could not actually write without being distracted if her phone was in the room or whatever how are you able to write how were you able to create uh, of all this time i mean what are some of the things that you've been doing over the years to to keep yourself focused well, I just want to, and this is something that I've found much more recently, because the way that I wanted to answer your question is talking about the fact that there are, at least for me, and I know for a lot of other folks, there are several voices in your head, right? I've been able to, more recently, um, I've been learning about internal family systems, which is this wonderful therapeutic modality that treats all of those different voices as as legitimate parts, legitimate facets of your psyche. So if I retroactively, you know, if I were to to discuss, you know, what was going on with me internally in my early 20s using today's like what I know today, um I'm able to say or to see that like the inner the voice of the inner critic is always there. If you have uh, a sort of inner cheering section to counterbalance all of that negativity and the and the self-loathing you know the 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 inner critic was was loud in in those early days but so was the cheering section the part of me that believed in my capability and believed in my ability to improve to hone my craft over a period of of many years so, and then the interesting thing, um, like, I just love to share whatever I'm super enthusiastic about, even if it has nothing to do with what we're talking about, I'm going to bring it up anyway. <laughs> You're a writer. You're allowed yes. to be expressive. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. So doing inner child work, um, using the internal family systems model has actually, so in the time that I've been doing this, so it's been the past like six or seven months, my inner critic has nothing to say. So even though things are not, it's not smooth sailing for me right now, I am tussling with my time travel novel. I've been working on it for many years. There are times where I think to myself, gosh, like my inner critic could be really loud right now telling me that I don't have another novel in me, but she's not, she's quiet. Um, and I think it's because, you know, talking about like counterbalancing with, with love and, and acceptance, you know, self-acceptance, unconditional self-acceptance, you know, doing that, that counterbalancing. I have a really simple journaling exercise that I do every morning that I think has allowed me to quiet that voice in my head, the the, the negative voice, um, which is just to, in my mind's eye, have a little outing with my inner five or six-year-old. And it could be anything. It could be a hike. It could be an art project. It could be my reading to her in the hammock. You know, and it's just a paragraph. It's super, super simple. And I give her some physical affection and verbal, you know, validation and, and affection. And that is just, and I, I realized it was, I was only like a couple weeks into it. And I was like, this is great. There is so much more space in my head. 
It's interesting. I like the idea of having self-dialogue because I mm. think we spend, we actually spend a lot of time telling ourselves we can't do something, don't yes. we? Yes, yes. We spend a huge amount of time putting ourselves down and, and, and kind of talking about how we can't get things done. Um, and I think ultimately, you know, we, we do ourselves a disservice by doing this every day. Why not flip the script, literally, and do it the other way? And say nice things and and have positive conversations with ourselves. I've heard many people say, you know, you know, and I think it stunts the creative process for people, of course, because the imposter syndrome. For those that don't know, it's it's I guess it's a product of a person's self doubt and becomes so powerful that no matter how expert you are, no matter how many years experience you have doing something, when you stand on that stage or you give that lecture, there's a voice in your head shouting very loud, "You don't belong here. You're a fraud. You feel like an imposter in your own life." Uh, and interestingly, conversely, on the other side is what we call, uh, I don't know if there's a singular name for it, but it's a refer often referred to it as the Dunning-Kruger effect, which is the less you know, the more you think you know. And and often it comes in relationship where it comes in conjunction with arrogance and stupidity and people who believe they are the best at what they do. But it also comes with that sort of bold arrogance, which quite a few political figures who shall remain unnamed <laughs> on this podcast have clearly illustrated moving away sort of from human psychology i'd love to kind of understand a bit more about some of your the work that you're most proud of can we dive into that and tell us a story of how that happened i'm sure you know what i'm talking about i think we just mentioned it as a clue that hopefully uh some of the audience have have seen the film and with the books but yeah i'd love to hear about it let us know what the story is and, and how it all began yeah yeah so uh actually the the funny thing is i think this is a good thing that the story of mine that actually w had the whole adapt adapt adaptation you know wonderful merry-go-round is not the work that i am most proud of i it's funny, I, I dipped back into it because I was, okay, so the for anyone who isn't familiar with my work, the novel I'm speaking of is called Bones and All. But you can't spend the night? Not all night. So where'd you move here from anyway? Eastern Shore. Try that. You have to be good and gone. I can't help you anymore. I know it's not your fault. You were born this way. You ate them. I believed you had to. I don't know why. It is a, it's my teen cannibal road trip novel. And you know, if you just think about it for a moment, it will make sense that a vegan would write a book like this because the idea is that if you're not already vegan and you read a story about cannibals and you start thinking about flesh eating in a different way hopefully i've inspired that disgust in you and it will it will it will take root in your mind and in your heart so that was the that was the idea in writing this story I actually got i think i got the idea while i was at sadna forest so and yeah and then it was uh sold the book in early 20 it was april 2013 uh the novel came out in march 2015 and then uh, it was that summer that we sold the film option. But you don't think that, I mean, you got to be realistic because most of the time when an author sells a film option, it, it doesn't lead to anything. So, you know, and actually, you know, given this, as we're recording this, um, the screenwriters are on strike. And, you know, I, I find myself thinking how fortunate it was that we got this 
we got this film made, you know, a year before this. My point is that so much of this is out of your control. And so I had, you know, getting back to humility, I call this ego management that you just can't take. And what, you know, what you were saying about arrogance, not the necessary kind, (laughs) the other kind of arrogance that keeps you unteachable. Other lots of us. I don't actually meet many others. Why did you offer to bring me along? You seem nice. I am nice. I came looking for you. I smelled you. You can smell me half a mile away. Can you do that? Not that far. I got rules. Never, never, ever ate an eater. I thought you might be hungry. For hens? No. Who lives here? Is there someone dead up there? Not gonna be like that. We don't have many options. Either you eat, you off yourself, or you lock yourself up in there. We're dangerous. You one of us? Jake's teaching me how to smell other eaters. <laughs> but we can hurt one another just as bad. Go, 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 go. It's too much. We gotta do this. We have to do it. You've been following me? We got unfinished business. You don't think I'm a bad person. I had a very realistic sense of what might or might not happen. And so whenever there was progress, it was like, oh, surprise and delight. You know, it was like, oh, I didn't I didn't realize it was, you know, Christmas, which is, I think, the best way to be when it comes to, you know, selling international rights or selling film rights or any good thing that happens, you know, to, to not expect it, to not really think about it because you're just focused on the work. You know, you're focused on the next, you know, because even as all of the exciting film stuff was happening, I was focused on my time travel novel. This is the story that I want to tell. This is the work that I'm really excited about, the work that I'm most proud of. And, um, you know, someday I'll be able to tell you more about it. Um, I'll just I say- I love time travel, by the yeah. way. So I'm, I'm, I'm very looking forward to reading oh, it. Oh, good. So good. I, I routinely have dreams about time travel and mm. um, I'm obsessed with the likes of Star Trek, which obviously time travel is, it uh, occurs frequently in Star Trek. So mm-hmm. I don't know if you're a Star Trek fan, but- <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 I'm not a Star Wars fan. I feel like I'm a Trekkie just because that was one of my grandparents' favorite TV shows. And I remember them having it on in the den when I was with them when I was little. But I don't remember that much from, you know, Star Trek The Next Generation. Yeah, the new series are all like a thousand times better than the old ones. The animation and the VFX and the staging, everything. They're insane. I mean, the Picard season and the Next Generation, the, the new version of Strange New Worlds, which is on Paramount. I just love science fiction, and this obviously this ties ni- nicely into our conversation about writing and about you know work, you know building world building. Is it's just pure imagination and it's pure escapism. I've been watching Star Trek since I was probably about eight years old, and I'm 44 now. It's been a part of my life. It's been a thread throughout my life uh, that has inspired me and uh, given me that escapism to, you know, take those trips beyond the stars out into the universe and and to also dream about like parallel universes and time travel and tachyon. If you're you're Trekkie, you'll know what tachyon particles are Um, (laughs) and all these different technologies and different alien life forms and different 
languages and and the infinite nature of the universe and that's why i love think things anything, anything sci-fi because you know when we start to think about sci-fi and the stories that are involved in sci-fi there is no limitation to our imagination um space odyssey 2001 which was uh, a book my granny used to read to me when i was a kid my granny is 102 years old now <gasps> that's amazing she reads several books a week uh, and she's probably the most well-read person I've ever met in my entire life. And start and start. She's uh, had plenty science of time. <laughs> yeah, science fiction <laughs> has played a huge role in her life, mm. and so you know, fiction, science fiction, has always been a big part of my life, which I absolutely adore. These stories because the world has always been a t- difficult and dark place, and, and writers inspire people to take those journeys away from the mundane. You know, people are able to escape into these inner worlds. But on that subject, obviously, of escapism and inner worlds, like what has been the feedback over the years about your stories and your books? What kind of things have you heard from people say about, you know, the, your creations, your yeah. babies? <laughs> yeah. Well, let me just respond to, to what you were just saying about, about escape, science fiction and escapism. And again, with this sort of, you know, the, the, um, two seemingly paradoxical things are, are happening, I think, when we consume you know, a story that could not happen in, in real life or, you know, in the case of these, you know, starships or whatever, this is not going to happen for many, 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 many years. So it might as well be, quote unquote, impossible, you know, for our purposes. Um, on the one hand, you've got the pleasure and the escapism. On, on the other hand, you are cultivating a possibility mindset, which serves you when you're, you know, back in the mundane, in your mundane reality, you know, and and, and you're, you know, as I always come back to, you know, reorienting ourselves, you know, in relationship um, to the non-human world. So to me, I, th- I think that consuming a lot of science fiction <laughs> is, or is not, it's not just for pleasure or for, you know, escapism or, you know, because, you know, even cultivating an interest in, in STEM, you know, it can be something that, that really touches all of these other aspects of your life that seemingly have nothing to do with Star Trek. So, oh, and by the way, so I've made a I've made a list of things that I will indulge in once I have figured out my time travel novel plot. I, I thought I had a plot. I don't have a plot. Um, so I'm still working on that, but I've got my like my pleasure list. And I'm like, you know what? I'm gonna put Star Trek on that list once I feel like I have the mental bandwidth. So thanks. So to you, you should, because there yes. are w- lots of wonderful series which I highly recommend. There is Star Trek Discovery as well, which I forgot to mention, which is a wonderful excursion. No, that's not not a big enough word. Voyage. Yeah. Yeah. Like yeah. Star Trek Discovery is this voyage epic is voyage ac- across the cosmos. And they mm. even go to the edge of the galaxy because the starship in Star Trek Discovery has something called the spore drive. I don't want to spoil it, but they have something called the spore drive, which is a piece of technology, a piece of like kind of undercover secret technology that allows the ship to travel instantaneously anywhere in the known universe and uh, it uses what's called the mycelial network which is a dimension that exists underneath ours which is like a mycelial network like a mushroom network where the ship can go in and then travel through this mycelial network and and pop up anywhere else in the universe yeah there's so much interesting a lot of people quite like a lot of hardcore trekkies didn't like the idea of the spore drive because they were like then you can just get out of the way anywhere and end up anywhere and it defeats the object because one of the great parts of storytelling in my view is the journey and how maybe we you can handle t- the t- obstacles t- along the way yeah. yeah exactly maybe you could talk a little bit about as a writer and creative the different types of stories because there's like six different stories or 12 different stories there's like set 
roughly i've heard this before that there's there's sort of archetypal stories mm. with the hero's journey and the mm. is that true is that is that a myth or I don't, you know i haven't really looked too much into that i mean i'm i'm pretty well versed in the hero's journey and I, i'll go back and just answer your um before i answer this question um you know t- t- talking about feedback because I didn't get it, I, I didn't um, get a chance to to answer that. Although I don't have too much to say, just because um, I try not to pay attention. Um, and so what I'm what I'm getting is emails from readers, which is you know that's a wonderful thing. And someone finishes your book and takes the time to you know send even you know just a a short paragraph to say how much they enjoyed it. Um, I have only received a couple of emails from folks um, saying that my work made them vegan. <laughs> but that's that's those obviously are my favorites. I know some sometimes my my you know my stuff is weird and it's not for everybody. Um, but I think I think it's really I spend a lot of time on Goodreads, but I don't I'm obviously not reading my own, you know, reviews of my own work. Um, but I like to read really well reasoned, you know, very rational responses, you know, that folks have to what they're reading. And so, you know, so that's useful to me when I'm trying to decide if I want to, you know, check out a book from the library or, or, or purchase a copy of it at my local independent bookstore. <laughs> but I, and so, you know, it's, it's, the feedback is, is, is useful as long as it's rational and, you know, and, and emotionally neutral, because sometimes people will say, this book was a train wreck. And it's like, well, it's possible that the problem isn't with the book. It might be, and I'm not insulting the person you, who, who you get said good this. feedback to your books. I do, so I do. Yeah. Um, but it, you know, just it's just that sometimes a book is not for you, and that's okay. Sure, yeah. Because so. I mean, your your bones and all book, you know, that was mm, translated into many yes. languages. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and and obviously, and we we're just saying t- turned into a feature length film. Yeah. I mean, obviously, you said it's not your most proud piece of of work mm. yet because you still got much more in the tank. But yes. That's a pretty big deal that your film, your book was made into a film, was on mm. a big screen. Like, how did that, how, how did that feel? You must have been proud of yourself for that. I, I, I mean, <laughs> I, and I, I, I don't want this to come off as false modesty. Um, I really hope that it doesn't come off that way. No, so I wrote the book in like 2012, right? And then it was 2021 when the movie was like, the movie is actually happening. Um, so it, they filmed in the Midwest, in Midwest U.S. in May, June, July of 2021. So you know, I had I had nine years, you know, like seven years since the time I was you know promoting the book. So I had moved on. Like it was ancient history for me, creatively speaking. You know, and I guess the reason why it's not in my favorites of the, you know, the novels I've published, you know, partly it's the subject matter. This was a book that I felt like I needed to exorcise. So, you know, and it's a, it's a meant to be a disturbing read and it's not, that's not generally my wheelhouse. I like to consume horror stories. I like spooky stories, but not horror stories. Um, you know, when it comes to what I prefer to write, I prefer to write cozy fantasy novels. So that, and that was definitely, definitely not a cozy fantasy novel. And I also felt like, you know, it's a, it's not the most ambitious plot that I've attempted. There are so many changes I would have made. Um, I wish I could do this like retroactive, like mind meld with the screenwriter, Dave Kajanik, because he just added so many wonderful elements, you know, and I, I, I actually, we had a wonderful conversation. I really lucked out with this creative team. And that's, I mean, I, I, I feel like it's, you know, it's their accomplishment. You know, I, I sort of laid the foundation and then they built the house. 
so you know so i don't want to take too much credit it's still your story but i know what, i know what you mean i mean i, I totally understand what you're saying you yeah. know, things things evolve a lot as a creative and almost a decade of time between mm. the, the release of the story and then seeing it on the screen you know a lot of time goes on but you obviously are working on lots of things now. You've written some other books. I mean, what are there some books that you would want to talk about that you feel are your, your most proud? I'd love to hear. Like, what do you, you know, what would you hold up? Yeah, and it's it's unfortunate that Bones and All is the only book that's really widely available. Like, that's the only book that was published in the UK and uh, you know, in all these other all these other languages. But if it's if it's available, if you're able to get your hands on a copy of The Boy from Tomorrow, that's my middle grade novel that I still feel proud of. Um, it's my most recently published novel. It came out in 2018, uh, which is like such a long time ago now. Um, I've been focused on nonfiction for a while, so I, so I have two books on creativity. That is One, available on Amazon uh, in the UK. Yes, so. yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so, that le- yeah, so that at least there's that. Um, yeah, so The Boy from Tomorrow is my, that's my cozy fantasy. It's got, you know, it's spooky, but it's my cozy fantasy read for, you know, for the younger, the younger readers, um, you know, ages like eight to 12. Um, but really children of all ages, you know, nine to 99 or, you know, your grandmother, hundred, <laughs> let's say 109. I think I'm that's. sure she would love it. Oh, yeah. I might send her a copy. <laughs> she loves these type of stories. So yeah, me too. So um, you know, like getting back to rereading the the, rat, the rats of uh, Mrs. Frisbee and the rats of Nim, like that's just the, the the animal protagonists in children's literature are. It's it's such a bummer that it, they've they've gone out of fashion. That middle grade publishers don't want to publish books with animal protagonists by and large. This has been my the the feedback that I'm getting from Thanks. from a couple of different writers. Why, yeah, why, why do you think that is? I don't know. I don't have an answer for that. I mean, I know the Redwall books, you know, and th- those those books are what, you know, like 30 years old now. Those were the, sort of the last books that I would say, you know, were bestsellers. And um, it's just like animals making war. It's just like, ah, that's that's not that's not what I want to read. But I don't know. Maybe I can bring it back. We'll see. I don't have an idea for, for a book with animal protagonists, but I would like to write a picture book about a monkey who learns how to knit. I've had that. I'm a, I'm a big crafter. So that's like that's a story I've had in my head for a long time. <laughs> So, so I'd love to I'd love to ask your opinions and views on artificial intelligence because it's now exploding. Uh, I mean, I've been working with it in various ways the last like year, but it feels like in the last three months, it's everywhere. Every piece of software I'm using is now got AI integrated into it, AI generative text, copy imagery. As a creative and a writer, you're probably like the first writer I'm going to ask this question. But do you know? Do you feel threatened by it in any way? And and are you aware of its of its current potential? Mm, yeah, it's funny because I was just on a webinar. I just attended a webinar with Jim Spellos last night, um, and he had spoken, um, as you and I both did, at uh, Main Street Vegan Academy Masterclass this past month. So Jim did a similar presentation to that group. And then we also had the conversation among the writers who were doing a panel in the chat about how nervous we are, not that we are nervous, that are we have different perspectives depending on what we're writing. So Karen Asp was talking about freelance journalism and how, you know, some news outlets looking to cut corners aren't even going to be, I mean, we're that group of writers are they're already their work is already so undervalued um, with the, you know, in internet media and, you know, folks you know, being expected to write for exposure, quote unquote, you know, and all that, it was already a problem. And so AI 
for Karen and her colleagues, I'm very concerned that it will be even harder for freelance journalists to make a living. For me, I am, I mean, I reserve the right to to change my mind about this, of course, but right now I, oh, especially since Jim was saying last night that you can teach chat GPT to, to imitate your own writing style. Correct. You can ask it to write in the style of, or you can actually use um, the way large language models work is their prediction engines. So mm. if we have enough of your writing. Yes we can re- write like you. So mm. if we have thousands and thousands and thousands of lines of your writing, we can, you can get the machine to write like you. You feed it ideas and it writes like you. It's only just begun. It launched in November, ChatGPT, and it's the most successful piece of software ever launched in the history of humanity. 200 million active users all using it every day and it's getting smarter and more intelligent with every minute that passes. And, you know, it's it's a remarkable piece of technology. And I think it's not going to go anywhere anywhere soon. It's the genie's out the bottle. It's been created. You know, just while we we're chatting, I, I went to ChatGPT and said, write a 10 paragraph short story about time travel in the mm. style of Camille De, De, De Angelis. Um, <laughs> shall we read a, a, li- shall we read a paragraph? A live Absolutely. Reaction? I can't wait to hear this. In the quiet hamlet of Kells, under the firmament (laughs) of twinkling stars, old Miss Sullivan lived in a rambling Georgian house. Its stone facade weathered by time and the elements. The house was an ode to antiquity, filled with old tapestries, ornate chandeliers, and countless books scattered haphazardly. Among these relics, (laughs) Mrs. O'Sullivan had a peculiar heirloom, a pocket watch of intricate design with gears made of bronze and a face delicately etched with Celtic knots. The watch, unlike any other, (laughs) held a secret, a wrinkle in the fabric of time itself. Does that sound familiar? <laughs> <laughs> so um, for, for, for some additional context, I used to be a travel writer. Right. So you see where all of the Celtic stuff comes in? I wrote Moon Ireland. Yeah, so that I, I wrote the first three editions of Moon Ireland, which is a U.S.-based guidebook series. And, and then there's, there are elements from my novels, Mary Modern and The Boy from Tomorrow. I am not worried at all that AI is going to take my job. <laughs> Good. <laughs> it's just this like absurd mashup. That was hilarious. Can you it's send that to me? Yeah, yeah, of course. <laughs> it's so interesting, isn't it? How new, obviously we could go back in time, take the television, for example, people were absolutely terrified of it. Mm. They thought that it was going to rot our minds. It was going to do all sorts of terrible things to us. And, you know, TV has done a lot of damage it can spread a lot of misinformation you know tv in its traditional sense but it is also a remarkable tool for escapism and imagination uh and i think all of these tools it's all really how we use them mm, um absolutely. i believe that artificial intelligence is an extension of us it isn't us it will be an extension of us it will allow us to ideate it will allow us to write write things in in ways we didn't think of before it's an augmentation it isn't a replacement and i think when writers understand that and they use it as a tool for ideation and planning and thinking it's like having a, a digital brain that you can tap into and and if, if it gives you something you think is useful then use it if it doesn't then it, then don't use it if it um, generates 15 ideas and you like one of them then you can dive into one of those ideas and explore it more role around with the machine because the machine can give you thoughts and ideas and it can bring back information so it is like google google search 
with somewhat of a basic intelligence attached to it. And I'm trying to say to people, you know, yes, it is replacing people. BuzzFeed got rid of their news team and their BuzzFeed are using ChatGPT to write articles. A lot of them. That's exactly what Karen was talking about. Yeah. Um, Mm -hmm. But you still need a skilled human being to manipulate the words. You still need someone, because obviously you could just be going, ChatGPT, write this, copy, paste, copy, paste. But unless you're reading the words, checking the flow, fact checking, you know, it's it's still like having a junior writer write something for you and then you just publish it without checking it. Um, It would be just as um, irresponsible to do that. So I'm not worried about it right now a lot of the media over the last few months would be like oh it's gonna kill us all and it's gonna destroy the world and people were saying that about the millennium bug i don't know if you remember mm. but those are who are old enough will know yeah. in 1999 people mm. were panicking about the millennium bug. everything is going to collapse yeah airplanes are going to fall from the sky 2000 ticked over on the calendar and absolutely nothing, nothing happened happened when it comes to you know panicking about whether technology is going to kill us or not i say to people stop worrying about technology killing us and let's focus on what we are doing to kill ourselves like the Mm. climate crisis like our diets like processed food like you know our sedentary lifestyle sitting on our bums all day you know these are the things that are just that are destroying humanity not artificial intelligence if anything artificial intelligence is going to inspire us to be better people because it will give us instant access to knowledge and wisdom at a touch of a button whereas you know google you have to hunt and sift through a lot of information a lot of the time it can be false obviously we're, we're almost out of time but i do i do want to sort of dive a bit more into the creative process as well and you know we've talked about chat gpt and it could be an answer to this but what do you do when you get stuck in a creative rut because obviously as a creative writer's block is is something that affects a lot of people so how do we how do you get past something like that you know would you use something like chat gpt how do you unblock that process your timing is perfect robbie because I don't want to say that I am currently in a state of writer's block because it's more of a trying to drink from a fire hose kind of problem. I have way too many ideas, so it's a curation problem. But in my um, vegan creativity book, A Bright Clean Mind, um, I and this is it's like the humility. You know, it, it's it's not like you get to the point where you're you know, you're as, as humble as you ever need to be, because this has been a humbling experience for me, because in that book, when I was talking about my experience at Sadna Forest, I was saying that, you know, going vegan made me turbocharge my creativity and have, have from that day to this, which was true at the time, never had a problem because I would have these trough periods, losing confidence, trying too hard, you know, in between viable novel projects. That back in the day was an inevitable part of my creative process. Now I'm thinking of it as, oh, wow, my vegan epiphany basically filled my tank for 12 years. How amazing is that? Uh, and now... I mean, as in inspired you, it gave you that sort of yes, burst of inspiration. Right. Yes, yes. Mm. And um, yeah, and and, and, and I, I really do um, attribute it to, you know, consuming the fear and the grief, you know, as a as someone who is, was, cons- was consuming dairy products. So know, do you of- need a new... Uh- epiphany do you need yeah, a new- I, well, yeah i mean th- there like you know there's always going to be this leveling up process as we move through life in you know whatever aspect uh is something that you know aspect of life is something that we feel really passionately about and i do i feel like i've reached the point where i'm i'm sort of at a creative plateau and i've gone back so this is so this is the rx so this is the rx that is working for me and of course i'm still not out of it but i feel good about it and that's the important thing is that I 
am going back to basics, learning about narrative design and, you know, character development and, you know, setting and all of the the things that you'd think, well, you know, you already know about all these things. <laughs> what, why do you need to go back and, and you read need a these? refresher? Yeah. And the thing is, and I'm also thinking about, and again, you know, humility, this whole thing is bigger than me. What I eat is bigger than me. The stories I tell is bigger than me. So I'm thinking about this quote unquote block period. I'm thinking about how I can look back on it. I'm already looking back on it, even though I'm still in it and trying to formulate the lessons for students who, you know, may not have even been born yet, which is a pretty cool thought. Kids who, you know, have the urge to tell a story and everything is is still unformed in their minds. And they're, and this is why I love writing for kids because they're still so possibility oriented. Um, and then as adults, we calcify, you know, we, we calcify and we become closed-minded to so many new ideas, things we don't even consider. There's, there's something I wanted to share with you. So, so one of my sort of very spiritual journeys uh, was to discover some books written by a lady called Jane Roberts. Uh, and she wrote something called the Seth material. Um, and oh, I've heard of him. Did, yeah. Yeah. Or, so Seth describes, yeah. yeah, Seth him, Seth describes himself as a suspended disbelief for a second dear audience member. But Seth described himself as a an entity no longer focused in a physical form. Now, I probably lost a few people at that point, but <laughs> anyways, Jane Jane was a, a writer and a teacher, um, and she experimented with what's known as automatic writing, which is this idea where you sit, hold a pen, and you kind of clear your thoughts and wait for the words to come. And she experimented with this for a while and began to write just spontaneously pages and pages and pages of knowledge, of wisdom, of ideas. And after a while, she started to have dreams about an elderly gentleman who was a bit like a lecturer who would visit her in her dreams and talk to her about the nature of being, the nature of consciousness, the nature of the universe, the nature of all things. Where does everything come from? Why are we here? What is the world around us made of? And um, there are many books that she ended up writing with Seth over over time. And the Seth books are, are a conversation between Jane, her husband, Robert, and Seth. Seth spoke with Jane, sort of through Jane, not like you would through a telephone, but in a way he he described himself as an extension of Jane, maybe a past life, maybe a future life, who knows. And a lot of people have said, it doesn't matter whether the knowledge and the stuff written in these books kind of came from Jane's goldfish. The point is, is that if, if the words on the page resonate with you, then they are something that could help you. And that goes for any book that you read. And one of the most interesting bits, which I loved about uh, the Seth material, which was, I'm going to read it to you. And it says, as you read the words upon this page, you realize that the information that you are receiving is not an attribute of the letters of the words themselves. The printed line does not contain information. It transmits information. Where is that information being transmitted then if it's not on the page? And now what I found, which had this realization about that, is that the written word is so powerful and so fascinating, and it is a form of time travel. Mm, because when you write books, yes. dear writer, you are communicating with your audience in the past, in the present, and in the future. Because those books, when they exist, it is your words on paper in symbols that the audience interprets and in their mind brings it to life. And isn't it a fascinating and mind-blowing idea that as you write those words on those paper papers and as they travel across the world and sold in all those bookshops, all those minds are soaking up your words and you're communicating with people and you know, you will die one day, as we all will, and people will be reading your books and you'll be communicating with them 
from beyond the grave. <laughs> <laughs> well, can I tell you right? a quick story? One way, of course. <laughs> <clears throat> yes, yes. I love everything you just said. I had an I have a perfect example of this that's not because, you know, we sort of think in terms of, you know, big, you know, grand splashy accomplishments, you know, getting getting the novel out with a, you know, big publisher and posterity and blah blah blah. I want to tell you on a riff off, off of what you just said. This is a really exam- this is a really seemingly small example, but it made all the difference to me. I was, you know, as I was saying, I'm trying to organize my my writer's archive. And I found this note, uh, a letter that my grandmother's best friend, Teresa Martino, dearest woman in the world, every time I spent time with her, I mean, she just like head to toe, full body love tingles because she was just such a loving, warm, kind person. So, you know, she was very good for my self-esteem. So she wrote me this letter while I was in grad school working on my debut novel, which would become Mary Modern. Um, I was doing the MA in writing program at the at uh, the National University of Ireland, Galway. In the fall of 2004, she sent me a letter and it was, you know, really ordinary, like, you know, just like, oh, you know, I wonder what you're going to be doing for Thanksgiving and da, 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 da. And then at the end, she said, please always stay as sweet and as kind as you are. And, you know, love Terry. That, and I saved that letter, postmarked 2004. Now she was sending this from New Jersey. She put a regular domestic stamp on it, but I was studying in Ireland. 37 cent stamp, 2004. That that letter reached me uh, at my dorm in Galway when it shouldn't have, right? It should have been returned to her for insufficient postage. I read that letter back in 2004, made me feel wonderful, you know, and I put it in with my papers, moved all my stuff back from Galway back to, to New Jersey. And then it moved with me to all these different places, you know, all the places I've lived since. And then I took it out a couple weeks ago and I, I found it again. I reread it again, full body, full body love tingles again, <laughs> all the feels, all the feels, all the wonderful feels. So, you know, my, my dear friend, my grandmother's best friend, who was also a dear friend of mine was loving me beyond the grave. You know, the communication, I mean, she, it was a form of time travel. It was like the letter had great significance for me, possibly even greater than when I first read the, the um, very simple letter, you know, in 2004. That's what's so beautiful and remarkable about language. For those who have never seen it, do search the tree of languages on Google Images if you can, and you'll see the way that all languages, most languages are related. They all stem from uh, similar branches or, or, sorry, related branches, more ancient languages, and become the languages we speak today. And the spoken word and the written word is one of the most remarkable things that we possess as human beings and our ability to communicate with each other, not just verbally, but of course, as on the written word and the, the pixelated word you might say on screens which is a cause con- of concern for me uh, sometimes when i think you know all this stuff is written and it's sitting on data centers on cloud servers but you know if there was some kind of massive outage and we didn't have electricity we would lose access to all that incredible work uh, and we have built our world around the digital and we've kind of turned our backs on things on paper and paper magazines and paper books Hopefully we don't regret it, but we'll see what the future brings. But we are almost, we're almost out of time. But I, I like to ask my guests um, this one final question. If you were stuck on a desert island and it was just you and a pig, obviously you're not going to eat the pig because you're a vegan. I'll give you one vegan dish, one music artist, and one book. What would you take with you? You know, I knew you were going to ask this question and I completely <laughs> forgot to like, because it's so hard to choose, right? So hard to choose. I haven't actually 
made this yet, but there's this, uh, you know, Vegan Cuts, um, their YouTube channel, Soph's Plant Kitchen. She, so I'm going to be making this in the next couple of days, chickpea quesadillas. Um, so the chickpeas, um, chickpea mash with like, you know, different, you call it coriander, right? We call it coriander. Yes. Yeah. And some sundry tomatoes. And then you put a cheesy sauce with mm. a cheesy with a Z. And then you make fajitas out of it. I'm like, oh, that's going to be so delicious. So that's like what I'm really excited to make. So that was the first thing that popped into my head. Love that. Even though I haven't actually made it yet. <laughs> well, um, you'll end you'll end up on your desert island with your quesadilla recipe ready to rock and roll. Yes. So, <laughs> so that and then um, Nat, either Nat King Cole, this is like a really big, Nat King Cole takes me to my happy place, you know, getting back to my, my grandmother and her best friend and like all the old time music, old time jazz. I've tried to settle down and anchor in one spot. I've tried, but then I get a yin to be somewhere I'm not. Au revoir, Sherry, you've been swell. Though I love Paris, it's farewell. For an existentialism, I'm a bust. Furthermore, I've got wanderlust. Yeah, so probably not King Cole. And then, um, wait, what was the third thing? A book. A book. Oh, I can, no way. I could not pick. You know what? Maybe I should just say Mrs. Frisbee and the Rats of Nim, um, because that's <laughs> the book that I'm obsessed with again. Um, but I should probably pick like one of those massive treasuries. Like my grandfather gave me you know, this two volume set, but I actually don't know that I would really like most of that. Probably if there was a, if there was like an anthology of like vegan fiction, um, I should check, um, Ash, is it Ashland Creek Press? I should check if they have something like that, like a big, like Tome. hardcover. Yeah. Cause it would have to last <laughs> me for a while. It would. It yeah. would until you get rescued. Camille, thank you so much for joining us on the PVN podcast. It's been fascinating hearing a bit of your story, your process, diving a bit into time travel and Star Trek and lots oh, of other things. It's been delightful. Um, yeah. It's been, uh, it's been a great to have you on the show. Thank you so much, Robbie. Thanks for joining us, everyone. I've been your host, Robbie Lockie, and this is the PBN Podcast. We'll be back next week with more food, fashion, animals, technology, science fiction, and everything else in between. 